You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. All right. Power Athlete Radio, welcome to episode 650. This is a milestone, John. We... We've done did it. What did we do? Uh, made it 650 episodes. Oh, great. And I'm really excited to be a guest on Power Athlete Radio today. Friend of the podcast has returned. Pod- <laughs> He's back. <laughs> we are- there, was, there was about six years where I was friend of the podcast. And then yes. finally I made it onto the main role. Well, we're going to take you back to when you were a friend on the podcast. I love taking a skip down memory. Power Athlete Radio episode numero uno aired February 26 in 2013. Wow. And did not include the friend of the podcast. Yeah, uh, so much so. I was surprised. I saw it pop up on social media and I was like, who are these guys talking Power Athlete Radio? <laughs> cease and desist. I had to send them a cease and desist immediately because people <laughs> were treading on my trademark. Yes. And yeah, a lot of funny. I mean, I think every 50 episodes we get into that story. So we'll link back, check 500, 450, 400, and et cetera. But we're going to focus today on one of your guest podcast experiences barbell shrugged okay in august in 2014 you were a guest on their show this is during the crossfit games and i imagine they just hey let's spend 60 minutes with every famous crossfit person and john at the time you were the world's largest crossfit games competitor i think i still won <laughs> still hold one i record. still hold the distinction of being the largest crossfit games competitor yes and by far probably the most successful professional athlete too. So they've had other professionals, but I don't know if they've had other ones that have quite maximized. Hit the accomplished and then became a gameser. Yeah. I don't know what they officially call them, uh, but. Gamers? Gamers? No, those are the. The kids that play video games? Yes, which is big biz now. They make more money than CrossFitters. Oh yeah. And they have strength and conditioning coaches. I did learn that this weekend. Mm which is cool. Uh, however, you were a guest on their show August 2014 and you dropped one of probably the most famous taglines in which we have moved the dirt. So let's take back to that moment. I'm not sure if you recall the, the essence of the conversation, but then you created a reference, an analogy. What would you call this? A hyperbole? Uh, it's a little bit of everything. Um, but yeah, as I was just discussing, you know, simile, metaphor, analogies going all that over with my daughter, which is really exciting because they're in sixth grade. So uh, kind of a, a little deal. They were just finished fourth grade and my one daughter was so far ahead that they ended up skipping both of my kids. So she did enough work to get Killy skipped as well. And so now they're in sixth grade, which is pretty interesting because in elementary school, you know, kids still like they didn't really get homework like in anything that they did, they could do in class. And it's a lot different. Now they're in middle school and they have a professor or a teacher, I guess say, that's their writing English professor. He, he seems like a professor just because I get all the assignments. And it's something collegiate level. Like we were going over, uh, like, a, you know, at the collective we just had, we were talking about some rhetorical writing, you know, different things about building ethos, you know, how to write a rhetorical analysis. 
Yeah, we'll get into that. And so the teachers asked him to do it, but it was cool. We were going over a whole bunch of words last night, trying to make distinctions between simile, hyperbole. Was uh, a parable mentioned? uh, We did not get a parable. But what I was making a metaphor for training, um, I think at least at that time when I noticed um, just kind of being with relatively new within the CrossFit community. I mean, obviously, uh, I competed in the games in 2008. We started CrossFit football in 2009. And so we'd already established ourselves and taught a ton of seminars and been teaching CrossFit football by the time this came up in 2005. Five years. Yeah. yeah. Um, the one thing which shocked me over and over again was that people were so impatient with progress. Uh, how come I can't do this? I just learned this. And I remember being like, how long do you think it takes to master a skill? And uh, a ton of that stuff had come out about 10,000 hours, remember? And, and, Gladwell. Uh, yeah, Gladwell stuff. So, I mean, we were deep into this And idea. peak Power Athlete Radio guest Anders Ericsson, yep. which the research that Gladwell based his stuff on mm-hmm. was all out by then. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was really at the forefront. I mean, like every, every time you turned around, I mean, kind of like now, uh, you know, you can't turn on. Uh, you know, social media and hear somebody talk about nutrition. I mean, I've never heard so many nutrition experts that just keep parroting everybody. Um, but same deal. Everybody was talking about this element of mastery and how it takes 10,000 hours. And I don't know if I bought into that, but I did know that it takes a long time to master a skill and to consider yourself a master of said skill. Um, so we've uh, started, um, I got like, so Jamie, Kind of got burned out on swimming five days a week, two to three hours in the pool. And she's like, I don't want to swim this summer. So um, she went back a couple days a week and she's like, I just don't know if I like it as much. So I, you know, basketball hasn't started yet. Um, and some of the other sports that she played. So I took her up to do jujitsu and she went to her actually her first official class yesterday. And as we were getting in there uh, in the car, we got there a little bit early, uh, get her all signed up, get everything done. And she hit me with like day one. What if I'm no good? What if I don't know anybody or what if I, uh, you know, suck at this? Um, you know, I'm not going to know anything. I'm nervous. I feel awkward. I feel stupid. And exactly what happens to everybody the first day that they're brand new. And I was like, this is your first day. Like you, you did the intro class. You liked it. We've talked about it. Um, we gave it a little time to marinate. You want to be here. Like everybody has their first day. Mm-hmm. Why would you think that somebody would expect you to be a black belt the first day? It takes 10 years to master that skill. So we went in, she got, she put on her gi, we got her belt all tied up. She got everything, you know, she was really excited about the free t-shirts and the stickers, which I can't blame her. Um, I don't think that ever goes away. No, dude. Uh, like everybody <laughs> loves free shit. Like you, you go in there and they give you free shirts. She's like, can I wear these to school? I'm like, 100% wear them proudly. And so she got into it and you know, they did their conditioning and they were warming and she's like, the other kids are better. I'm like, yeah, cause they've had more opportunity. So what I observed yesterday is the same thing that I observed for many years teaching cross the football that I had necessarily been detached from. So, I mean, I've talked um, over the years many times that as a professional football player, you end up living within this vacuum, within this bubble where all your friends are professional athletes. You train at places for special professional athletes. Uh, you go on vacation with your other buddies that are play football. You know, you go to weddings and you don't necessarily have a huge amount of friends that sit with outside the realm of being a professional athlete. So you just kind of assume everybody is like that. And everybody has a very, I know it's so weird, isn't it? But, you know, like you're the, you know, the sum of the five people you hang out with, right? Very, really uh, becomes true. In that moment, uh, you know, everybody has an origin story. 
everybody has their you know, user journey, let's say, but you know, this is where I started. This is how long it took me. And I played in college and this, I mean, some people got a little bit earlier. Some people got a bit late, but everybody has a certain, uh, story to get there, but everybody's also gone over that hump. They're actually a starter playing in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, when we trained athletes performance, like Abby Wambach was one of our training partners who's, you know, one of the top female soccer players. So, I mean, like those are the, you know, the type of people we were training with. Everybody was, uh, you know, to quote Greg Glassman, elite. Um, so when you're in that situation, everybody has their first day. I remember uh, 14 years old, I'd never played football. Uh, I walk in, they give us all the pads. Like we get the helmet, we get the shoulder pads, we get the pants, like we get all this shit. And I'm like looking at these pads and I'm like, well, they're shaped like thighs, I guess they go. And at the time they were like angled, obviously to like go up on the hip. And so I put them in and like had them going the wrong way, which would have made that they just jacked me in the nuts. And so I'm like putting them in and like I'm looking around and like I see everybody else putting their pads in and I'm like trying to like pretend like I, I know what I'm doing. Don't want to ask because of course nobody wants to be the new guy. I've never played football before. And then I see everybody stand up and I'm like, ooh, mine are in the wrong legs. And so I like shifted them before I did. I wrote like right and left on them so I wouldn't make that mistake again. And then we went out there and you're kind of like, okay, I, like I look like a football player. I got everything on. And then you get out there and we're doing drills. Take the first hit and realize my helmet isn't tight enough. You know, all of a sudden it's like, mm, yeah. uh, okay, not realizing how tight I need this thing. Um, so, you know, and then like the best position and to put your mouthpiece and like how tight you want your shoulder pads. I had them on way too tight, my helmet too loose, helmet gets knocked. All of a sudden I'm running and I can't breathe because my shoulder pads are too tight. I'm like, oh, okay, so shoulder pads looser, chin strap tighter. And unfortunately, somebody could tell you these things, but until you get out there and do it and take a shot and have your helmet spin around on you, you don't really know. So... Uh, I think the amount of people that never start something out of fear of that first day feeling awkward and new would probably be the majority of the population. Oh yeah. So taking her to jujitsu was really cool because I'm like, I I like the whole way up. I was telling her all the first time things that I went in. I remember the first time I went to martial arts. I remember the first time I boxed. I remember the first time I played football, all the things where I didn't know what I was doing. And I just tried to show up and just, like fake it till you make it, I guess. Well, yeah. And it may feel like a shovel that first time, that first day, but you're only moving spoons worth of dirt. Yeah. And so when I went on Barbell Shrugged, which we had done podcasts before, um, but we were a bunch of hacks. So we didn't really know what we were doing. Were. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like we've evolved somewhat, but it was a whole bunch of dudes and mics. And it was like, it, like when I went on Barbell Shrugged podcast, we'd obviously had some podcasts underneath our belt. But it was really like the first professional, like ours was just kind of like, I felt like we were hobbyists. Like there was one mic, five people calling in, you know, like we, we didn't understand about any of this stuff. Like we didn't have a studio, we didn't have cool mics, we didn't have obviously, a, a, you know, an Antonio, we didn't have a Jamie, like we had none of these things. And I mean, we weren't even doing video, we were just hoping to record it. Mm-hmm. And so when I went on Barbell Shrugged, I showed up, they had a airbnb I think. Like it might have been the first person I ever heard. I'm like, you rented these people's house. Hi, well, there's this thing that these people have and you can rent these homes. So they rented a house and like just, you know, outside of Carson. I think they were over in like Torrance, which I grew up in. And I show up and they had set up like they had, uh, you know, different mics. They were different play. They had uh, different like they weren't all next to each other. They were kind of spread out. They had headphones on. They had nice mics. They actually had video guys. And like it was kind of the first professional now I laugh about it, but at the time I showed up, I'm like, holy shit. 
Um, if I had known that this was actually going to be recorded, I probably wouldn't have worn a CrossFit shirt. I would have worn a, you know, cross a football or a power athlete, but I had just been at the games and where, you know, we were teaching for them. So I just, yeah, free on. shirt and stickers. Yeah. That's what everybody's into. Uh, I don't remember the context for the statement that I made, but they might've asked me like, Hey, like what's your philosophy on training is kind of what I remember the, the step being. And as you know, like, it's really easy just to tell people, but I think stories and analogies tend to stick better mm-hmm. because they're easier to digest they're easier to remember. I mean, that's when, um, I think I told you, I took a rhetoric class on oral tradition. Ever tell you this? Well, for our listeners that have not heard this story, ah, excellent. let's lay it down. I'm just going to, I uh, just didn't know if I told you this one, but, uh, I had this really interesting professor. He, uh, was, um, pretty pompous dude. And rightfully so, he had a Corvette that said Jeopardy one on the back. So he, until that dude who came in who crushed it and won everything, he was he had been the most winning Jeopardy champion. And he like to uh, regardless of what the weather, he still wore or walked in with an overcoat, an umbrella, and a hat, like just sort of kind of an interesting dude. Um, he taught our rhetoric of oral tradition, and what he had done for his masters. He had traveled all with like these Bedouins and gone and like, you know, like to uh, like all over like Africa, um, uh, Iran, Iraq. I mean, where the Sumerians, I mean, like went and traveled with all of these like Bedouin people. And every night what would happen when they set up their camp and deal, they would like, you know, all sit together in a commune place to eat. And then somebody would sing a story for entertainment. And he actually brought like eight millimeter, you know, millimeter tapes and recorded with mics all the oral tradition of these wow. different groups. Um, kind of very Weston Priceous in a lot of ways in terms of going out, meeting hunter-gatherers, taking pictures, getting information that we know now of. So he taught um, this oral tradition, and there were a few things that were pretty amazing. Every language, their first written work, is by far the most advanced on the planet. Right. So like if you look in Sanskrit, you think about um, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and every... Uh, culture has their own heroic epic and it's you know it's this uh, hero's journey and they all kind of follow I mean there's ones in Sanskrit there's ones in English I mean there's all like and what's wild is that every culture their first recorded um, you know form of writing is usually these heroic epics you know Homer yeah you have to memorize it all well what's amazing is that they're also the most complex you know you think about um, you know uh, I am a pentameter so they found that actually speaking within the da 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 da, da the IMF pentameter, um, that that somehow triggers the brain to, uh, to remember these. But what was amazing is these Bedouin guys would come in and there would be like people that would travel around and for like for warmth and for protection and for food, they would come in and they were kind of actors and put on these and he recorded them. And then what was wild was he traveled and heard different variations by different people. And the stories were like 99.9% accurate to the other groups so they had memorized these stories and what was wild was they would sing these for hours mm-hmm. so these guys had like a 99.9 recall of accuracy of being able to sing these songs that would some would last they'd be there a week and these guys would sing them every night for four or five hours and so they would tell 20 30 hours worth of yeah of i mean the odyssey is yeah thick yeah so i mean was homer did homer really write it or is he just the person who scribbled his name on it even though it had been sung for all this time. So, yes. Um, but what was wild is as we listened, 
to, you know, this, like these Bedouin tribes and all these extinct languages and are these ones that were super fringy. And then he went back and translated it and then would actually read us the stuff. Uh, there became like the teaching within metaphors. So like everything was like, you know, these, uh, you know, this individual. And what was wild was that the way that these individuals would teach was always through a metaphor of like, um, you know, uh, like you would be better served trying to, you know, hold back the sands of time, you know, to, I mean, it was just interesting that there was all these different analogies. Yeah. Poetic one-liners that are lessons. Yes. Uh, so that was always impactful for me, especially when speaking to the media, because the media and the NFL always like sound bites. Were you trained for that or they no, just, I just set you free? I just figured, um, I forever. S some dudes needed training though. Yeah. I mean, I think they were more nervous that I would say crazy shit, which I did all the time. The media. <laughs> yeah. Power at the radio episode, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anyone, but uh, I used to say some wacky shit to the news or to the media guys. They were, you know, asked me one time and you know, I, um, I, I would just make different analogies. I'd be like, you know what? We were out there like uh, 300 Spartans, you know, long before the movie 300 came out, you know, it felt like we were, you know, battling the Persians with three, you know, so I used to make these historical references constantly. <laughs> Uh, my favorite was when um, this guy asked me, like, what do you think as you're running out on the field? I'm like, that's a great question. Yeah. And I told the guy, Abe Cesar Moritori Te Salutant, which is Latin for Hail Caesar, those of us about to die salute you, which is what the gladiators would say right before they died. They would all stand up there and be like, Hail Caesar, you know, those of us about to die salute you. And then they would go fight in battle. And this guy, like when I said, this fucking head exploded because obviously he didn't speak Latin. <laughs> Um, and then I think I used uh, another one, which was another one of my favorites, which I think about actually constantly, which is uh, Barba non facit facilium. A beard does not make you a philosopher. That's, a, of, that's what every, everyone needs to hear right now. So that was one of my other. So I, there, there's a few uh, phrases in Latin that I've memorized in that one, which is Barba non facit facilium, which is a beard does not make you a philosopher is like i mean that's as oh, old as time we're gonna get a lot of hate mail uh the other one is acta non verba deeds not words ah yeah and then the other one is alia ikata esta which is the die has been cast and then there's another one that cicero had which was sumum bonum it's an expression which means the highest good so i mean there's like some interesting like latin phrases uh, that I would always throw out to these guys. Why? Because I'm a fucking dork. But uh, that one with the philosopher dude is like a beard doesn't make you a philosopher is so great. Mm -hmm. And because uh, all these uh, Philly sports writers always had beards, and I never had a beard. So well, you know what they say. The what What is strong beard, weak chin in Latin? <laughs> uh, that would be Bob Wellborn. I'd have to get. I mean, we could. Um, I'm sure I'll craft it. Uh, but. What was was super cool within this oral tradition class, um, you know, the idea of like being able to paint imagery through analogy and story. And so when they asked me about a training philosophy, it was easier for me to throw that one liner um, about moving dirt. Mm -hmm. And what was wild was I had never actually ever voiced that to anybody before. Um, did you ever see? Um, was the movie with uh, Robert Redford where he the natural no uh, fucking one of the best the sting? one of my favorite movies no the one where he is the the general who goes to jail and then James Gandolfini is the warden 
Oh, I don't know. Okay, so he must go to jail in a lot of movies. Let me well, see. there there was a real bitchin' movie where he's a uh, he's a general in uh, I think in some somewhere um, it, like a U.S. general considered the most decorated, and something happens, and they file a charge against him, and he has to go uh, to this um, this army prison, military prison, the last castle, the last castle. So in there, they have this wall, and they like go build the wall, and they basically are moving all these rocks, and they don't stop to build this wall. And I like the analogy of like building a wall, moving these stones, as long as they didn't stop rain or shine, they, they were moving towards their goal. And it just became very apparent, especially when I was teaching across at football seminars, that people had no concept of the amount of effort time for mastery, right? We used to see it all the time. I suck at these dead bugs. Mm-hmm. Those, for those of you guys who don't know, across the football, we have where we start, we teach the squat actually from your back, trying to te- do a basic ISO stability test which allows you to move your limbs independently of each other while maintaining neutral trunk, neutral spine. And we would put people into it and invariably everybody failed. Why? Because they'd never done it before. Yeah. And then I would always get the like, I sucked at dead bugs. What does that tell me? A lot. And I was like, well, it tells me a lot, but it also tells me you've never done a dead bug. mm -hmm. So how do you get good at dead bugs? You do more dead bugs. And then you get to the point, and we used to want to, we used to just smoke people, right? Like we would coach from the dead bug position and do them for five minutes straight. And you'd be like, oh my God, this is wizardry. No, we just know how to stay in an efficient position and maintain trunk stability while moving my limbs mm-hmm. and coaching. So the all of these seminars were extremely important for me because one, I was a elitist. I mean, I have no problem saying that I lived in a fantasy land. I lived in this elitist little world where everybody graduates from Berkeley, everybody's super smart, and then everybody goes and chants and plays in the NFL and drives a nice car. And I lived in that life for like 15 years of my life. So all of a sudden, I mean, majority, like over half of my life at that point had been in this environment. So now I catapult and I'm traveling around teaching seminars. With a few hacks, yeah. Basically <laughs> on my philosophy and the stuff that I'd done with Roth and all the people we'd worked with. I mean, I introduced, I mean, the amount of people that we introduced to Charlie Francis has to be in the thousands. When I uh-huh. talked about, you know, the idea of like, uh, you know, max effort sprinting, the only way you get fast, to quote Charlie, the only way you get fast is by running fast. Running slow does not make you fast. Uh, if you need to work technique, then you do them at lower heart rates and repeats and discussing Charlie's philosophy with people, which was impactful for me within my own running and people being like, who is this Charlie Francis? So um, we would get people that came to the seminar and there was always the same question. How do I get better at this? But what people were not ready for is how long does it take to become a master of something? Mm-hmm. You know, and Gladwin's work, 10,000 hours. I mean, does it take 10,000? Can you master it in two? What about the people that go 10,000? Are, are they masters? You know, the age of Bruce Lee, I don't fear the man who does 10,000 kicks. I fear the man that's uh, trained one kick 10,000 times. Mm-hmm. Did he need 10,000 kicks to become a master? Well, actionable representation of Move the Dirt is also Bedrock Training Program. Yeah. And then another story that we helped paint the picture for the value of a linear progression. Yep. Milo yeah. and the Bull. Yeah, Milo and the bull. When Milo was little, he picked up the calf, and as Milo grew and the calf grew, he continued to lift the bull. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the story of the linear progression. But this idea of moving some dirt, um, where I think people get stuck, and I think even to some extent, uh, I, I get wrapped up in this a little bit, where if I can't go train at 100% and give 100% effort and go out and fucking leave the gym in shambles and feel like I won that day, then, you know, was it a successful day? 
And I think you get caught in this idea of I can't do everything I want. And uh, that really came down towards the end of my NFL career. So, I mean, obviously, um, I felt that I wasn't ready to retire. Um, and it took me a number of years to come to grips with that. But the day you retire, and it's not voluntary. I mean, they retire you. And I, and I knew my knee was fucked up and I couldn't play anymore and had surgery and it was fucked. Um, but what, what happened was there was about about a year, maybe 18 months, two years after that, where my knee was still really inflamed and there was a lot of problems. And I got to the point where I couldn't squat. I couldn't really bend my knee, but I still needed to train. So Callie had purchased those old, uh, I don't know if it was Callie or somebody, um, had purchased those old bodybuilding magazines. Callie, yeah. But in that magazine, they showed the hip thrust. So they were like showing like the barbell hip thrusts. And I took that from that magazine and started doing those. And, you know, and was able to like stay pretty strong doing those hip thrusts when all of a sudden my knee calmed down. I got back to squatting, met Dr. Bueller and went through this kind of metamorphosis. Uh, the analogy and now we're, you know, now all of a sudden we're at Barbell Shrugged and they asked me about training. And that analogy I gave about training is a lot like moving dirt. Some days you get a shovel, some days you get a spoon. But as long as you move a little bit of dirt every single day, we're moving towards a goal was really about me. Because I got to move a lot of dirt with a shovel for a lot of years. And then I got to the point where I felt like I had a spoon. And I had this like this conscious thing, as long as I don't stop, I'll head towards my goal. Which, you know, when we had, um, um, who's the dude? Uh, O'Grady. Or O'Brady. Uh-huh. Um, Colin. Colin O'Brady, who, who walked across Antarctica. Which is also interesting because uh, I was helping the girls draw maps. So they had to do like a map of the world and they had to draw an Antarctica. Oh, on a flat piece of paper? Yeah, on a flat piece of paper. Glad they're learning the proper way. Yes. And so as we were drawing in Antarctica, we actually pulled up a map to see how big Antarctica is. And then I told the girls, I have a friend that walked across it. We had him on the podcast. And, um, but his whole thing is, as long as I kept putting one foot in front of the other, I knew I was going to get to where I had to go. As long as I didn't stop. And that was a similar feeling I had when my knee was messed up and I couldn't train and everything was going to shit. I knew that as long as I kept moving, even if it was just a, a spoonful at a time, and there's a reason if you can see the shovel and the spoon behind me over there, uh, I knew I was going to get to my goal. And as I was teaching these seminars, and you know, like, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes things are very cathartic. You know, I'm out there teaching and trying to bestow this information on people. Um, and while it was benefiting people, the person that most benefited was me. Because I got a chance to get up in real time and implement a training program that I've been theorizing. Implement all the stuff that I knew worked for athleticism. But then I got to put it out on the internet, give it for free. Then the people got to show up and then I got to lecture and teach on it. Which... If you take a step back to the talk we did, I mean, as a um, as a, a rhetoric major, which was my pre-law, I imagined that my future would be as a criminal defense attorney standing up in a courtroom with my brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, then when I did my master's and had to go student teach, you know, there was a teaching element in there. So the idea of being the man in the arena and standing in front of, whether it be a, a judge or a jury or in front of a whiteboard or a blackboard in those days, or traveling the world teaching cross the football seminars, um, that idea of standing up, presenting, conveying information, creating 
uh, you know, the sparks that people need to go on and make better versions of themselves has always been something that's always been important in my core. Yeah. And the analogy of moving dirt, I mean, it could have been moving rocks. It could have been, uh, you know, shoveling sand. But when I think about like this huge pile, like you get a shovel, you get a spoon. Sometimes you grab a big rock. Sometimes you grab a little rock. And I've used that analogy for my kids. I've used it within this property of like, you know, trying to manage. I mean, I have so much to grade in this, and but invariably you have to start. You got to put a stake in the ground, which I really appreciated John Aguilar, who we're going to have on the podcast, uh, who is a old time stone builder because I can't use stone mason because then people start getting into secret societies. And then Tex will get all nervous because, you know, Tex is really in secret societies. Oh, apparently I'm giving off some uh, number symbolisms. Well, there's a lot of Masonic imagery in the words, in the numbers you give off, which is crazy because I've never heard How you drop numbers. 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 Uh, Except episode numbers. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, in terms oh, of Masons, damn. like in terms of the Masonic order. I, I, I have a hard time seeing the Masonic order being at the center of a global conspiracy. When I see those guys as Shriners driving around in their little carts with their fuzzy hats, um, that move the dirt has been centralized within not only cross the football within power, power athlete within myself. I mean, I find myself yesterday, like I said, we were having the uh, always be a white belt moment. Like the idea of like the, the only, like the hardest day is the first day. The first day you walk in they're brand new every day after that will be, successfully easier assuming that you continue to move the dirt and so discussing this with jamie and being like dude this is the hardest day every day after now next time you walk in you've done this before Mm -hmm. right this is easy and now all you have to do is apply yourself to the program which is mastery how many hours does it take to get there and then she she asked she's like how long does it take to be a black belt i'm like i think it takes 10 years i mean i know people have done it faster but those people probably go twice a day six days a week so now they've had more opportunity to do this quicker. You, two days a week, maybe three days a week if we can get here on a Saturday because you also, you go to school, you do basketball, you know, if you still want to swim. I mean, there's a million things. You have a social life. I mean, there's all these things that play into it. If you get to the point where you, where you want to do jits five days a week, now all of a sudden we'll have to re, you know, revisit it. But I mean, I hope there's a day that you do. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's layers and levels to this phrase. And a lot of the people back when we were teaching the seminar, they were in the mindset that they could have a shovel every single day forever. Mm-hmm. And there is that competitive window where they're burning it to the ground every single day and they don't realize what they're doing to themselves in terms of training. Well, uh, there, there also is a threat of periodization in there. That like, I mean, some days you get a shovel, some days you get a shovel. That's, a that's what I'm I expanding mean, to, yeah. these, this idea of, of like, planning. Like you should have a shovel, you should have a spoon, and you should have a rake. And you should be able to go in there and shovel. And a hammer. And a hammer. You should have multiple tools in the toolbox. The problem is, is that the people we were going to see had one tool. And it was a fucking hammer and a big hammer. And they used to just split people on the rock. Well, they were, we were exposing them to this concept, this idea of athleticism and training towards a goal that is not necessarily just solely efficiency. Well, but it wasn't their fault. You got to remember. I'm not blaming them. The best trick the devil ever, ever pulled <laughs> is convincing the world he didn't exist. The best trick Greg Glassman ever pulled was convincing the world that work capacity and athleticism were the same thing. Yes. 
Yeah. So just because you worked hard, you were athlete and you were athletic. But we know that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet we used to see people, I mean, we used to see people all the time who became extremely proficient and moved well within the CrossFit methodology. They could do kipping pull-ups, they could do all this stuff, but then all of a sudden they, and when we saw this at the CrossFit Games, right? All of a sudden they say, you know, uh, they throw Kalip out there and ask him to change direction. Remember when they had the, uh, the zigzag? Well, that, that was always my biggest fear is, is the danger of an ACL tear during these unknown, unknowable tasks that they throw out there. Yeah, but that was back in the day. What's interesting for me is to see the evolution of training now where now um, these individuals are looking at themselves like 360 multidimensional athletes that are having to move through space on their hands this way. I mean, like the training has effectively, because the demands have, uh, have so increased that the training has forced these individuals into a more athletic template. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not just uh, bilateral hip hinging in a sagittal plane. No. Well, often, like, let's say their physiology fails them. They grow up and realize, oh, I have to have some spoon days in there. For many of our athletes that discover they don't have the time, the ability to recover, we send them towards grindstone because life gets in the way. So sometimes life hands you the shovel today. Sometimes it hands you the spoon. So explain the connection to grindstone and you yourself, CEO, family man, still getting your training in and building your trucks and running a a nonprofit and, and, and. So explain the value of now the analogy move the dirt towards maintaining your athleticism, muscle, and every one of your specific training goals. Yeah, no, the, um, so the, use another analogy, the individual that tries to sit on every seat sits on no seat. So what I tend to do is through the year, I periodize focus. So for the last uh, four months, we had been focused on the collective and the truck. And the Wade's Army truck yeah. found at Wade's Army Auto Work. Yeah. If you, and if you want to, uh, we'll, we'll flash Sweep some pictures. Sweepstakes for a $100 ticket to yeah. enter a, a 1974 Chevy Blazer. You're doing a great job. So uh, for the last summer, I mean, pretty much this whole summer, we've been focused on collective and getting this truck built. So that became my priority for most of the stuff. Um, and unfortunately my training took a little bit of a backseat. So I developed a three day a week kind of a full body program. So I was able to hit that two to three days a week and I was trying to do some aerobic work, but I was failing miserably. And what I learned is that if the physical component for my own training, especially with the aerobic base and the athleticism, the med balls and all the other cool shit I like to do, if that isn't uh, at the forefront of my own life, I feel like a little depressed. But I also know in my head that the time that I need to do that is better spent doing some other projects. Like one, making sure that we get the collective done, which I think we crushed out of the park, which I got to give you a little bit of congratulation on. Um, dude, we came in and I think the event that we just did was better than any symposium we did and better than anything we've done to date. And I'll tell you why. I had a chance to give one of my favorite talks and one that I've given to you guys on numerous occasions, the idea of like, you know, rhetorical writing and argument and persuasion and this, but then also being able to discuss one of my favorite points in history, 
the time at which the old gods had died and before the new god had, had been born. So, which included, uh, you know, Cicero, Seneca, and also uh, Marcus Aurelius. So that was really impactful because that's also a piece of the Power Athlete book that we're, you know, going to hopefully strike. A, we've already been striking out. We need to really dig in on. So, uh, but what I tend to do is I look at like, you can't, the man that sits on every seat sits on no seat. So what you have to do is focus your time and say, all right, I know that these events have to be done. We know that that blazer had to be done September 1. We know that the collective had to be done September 9th and 10th. Now, all of a sudden last week or the, uh, this week, I mean, the last couple of days since then was a little bit of decompression, a little bit of soul searching, and then figuring out what's the next seat to sit on. And that's, you know, us going hundred miles an hour with all the training programs, everything that we're doing in terms of trying to like remote coaching, maximizing all of the things we were trying to do within the website, all the stuff that's been going on behind, but also now it basically pivots and now the training goes back because now we have to get in there and start developing stuff like all of, uh, the, um, dynamic throwing, you know, rotational power stuff that we were talking about with Woodski, all of that. I mean, rough stuff, you know, looking at the mobility, you know, going up and seeing what Jamie's doing. I mean, um, you know, uh, in terms of like, and this is the thing that I think is so interesting with jujitsu. Um, I don't look at it as like the alpha and the omega. Uh, I look at it as a piece of training, the idea of like somebody close to you. And then also it allows different planes of motion. Um, what I really liked about her swimming and especially the girls do gymnastics. I forgot that they do gymnastics a couple days a week is the different orientations. You're getting used to being upside down. You're moving around objects. There's like a kind of a 360 multiple, multiple planes type of movement. So I like that about gymnastics. I like that about jujitsu and that she's on the ground, she's off the ground, she's moving, she's moving here, escaping. So there's a, uh, kind of a piece of like artistic or I guess athletic creativity mm -hmm. associated with it. So in terms of like self-defense and all that, I don't really know. What I like is I like the movement through space and moving in relation to another individual. So I know for me, um, one, now that the, the seat is kind of turned and we've, we've knocked out these two things, we got the truck done, we got the collective done. Now we'll have to go a lot harder back into our own training and focusing more on all the different projects that we tended to kind of put to the side. So that's for me, how I do that is I look and I basically take stock, like what's the most important thing at this moment? We know we had to get the collective, knock it out of the park, and we know that we had to get the truck done. And so those become paramount, but I know that those have a finite date and they have a delivery and now it pivots. And now it's time to fucking go a hundred miles an hour and get, and get back into the training. And you didn't stop training. No. Just to be clear. No. So now in, in reference to but grindstone and people's lives, like it fits. So, but like when I talk about training, like grindstone is kind of like, okay, hey, there's two mandatory days and you can kind of work a third in. And I was kind of just basically taking the upper and the lower and I was just kind of smashing them together and spreading it into like one day and then splitting it into two. So it was kind of a full body template and then I was hitting some aerobic work. But I knew that, you know, we'd get up in the morning, have all the work that we got to do before noon. And then I was in the shop till eight or nine or 10. We did that for, you know, six, seven, eight weeks. So when that happens, you don't have a ton of time and it's not like, well, I gave up on training. I just know that that's what people but, often do, but that's the move, the dirt mentality, right? I knew that life was going to give me a spoon, not because it was the effort I wanted to give. It's because I had a ton of spoons, right? And some of the shovels were bigger than the spoons, right? Like we had some big shovels, some big buckets to fill. And that 
is very important. Also, I had kids home. Oh yeah. So that's a. I mean, I don't. I don't, um, I don't know until you have kids when you realize you think summer and having kids home and you're trying to manage this and three and then you know obviously cash is type one causes a, a, a ton of time, but now that the kids go back. Uh, I have, you know, my focus changes a little bit, but also there takes a little bit of time to decompress and to take a deep breath and think about and reflect. And I think the problem becomes when we have a huge milestone in this life, um, you know, whatever it is, let's say a death of a parent, a birth of a child or something like we did with the collective, which is our end of the year capstone event that we worked the entire year to put on an amazing event. I think you have to take a little bit of time to like look back and reflect whether it's journaling, writing, you know, uh, hanging out, like just doing something proactive to like solidify it in your mind and then put a stamp on it and then push it away. And for the, like the last bunch of days, like uh, as I got up and gave that talk, like, you know, it was basically what we called the code name antiquity, but like what a coach or a mentor can learn from antiquity. And the big piece was teaching about like, you know, the rhetorical writing process, the ethos, pathos and logos and how they develop it. And then also understanding some, some great thinkers, but then also realizing that there was a huge piece of that that I left out because one, I, was, I knew I was over on time. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if we're ready to get into that particular. No, I, I know. But there was a piece, but like not, not having that discussion at that moment with those individuals and just dropping it on them. One, it wouldn't have been beneficial. But two, like a lot of this stuff for me is about me. I know like we're giving this information, but I like to hear myself. And, it, and, and being able to present at these events is extremely important for me because it forces me to have to put my thoughts into something actionable. And so that piece was really cool. And digestible. Yeah, and digestible. Which is a skill all in itself. Yeah, I mean, people do it through writing. You know, like people write stuff. And, um, you know, like I was trying, like, so um, I'll bring the analogy back to Jamie and Kelly. So they're English I call him a professor because I was reading through. I'm like, dude, you got a professor. This isn't a teacher. Um, what he's demanding them to do. And so the the first book they read, they had to. He basically pulled an argument out. Like, um, I need you to discuss something where one of the characters took a chance. So as we were going through the writing piece, uh, you know, he, you know, here's the parameters. And I tried to explain to Jamie. I'm like, you just need, you know, because he they had a brainstorming session and then they had a pre-write and then they had a rough draft and he threw through all these pieces. So as we went from the brainstorming to the rough, just getting it on, I tried to explain to her, I'm like, just write as much as you can. And she's like, but he's not going to like it. I'm like, it doesn't matter. You know what's going to happen? You're going to submit it. He's going to give you feedback. From that feedback, we'll write your finished product. And she didn't understand the writing process. So she's like, well, he, you know, he uh, marked it up. He didn't like this. He didn't like this. And I'm like, 100%. You've, one, you've never written for the guy. You don't know the style in which he wants you to write. And the most important thing is getting something on paper that you can get feedback from because once you get feedback, like in training, let's see you squat. I can't give you feedback. I can't tell you how to squat until I see what you're doing. Then we're going to make changes and we're going to start working and working and working to have your perfect version. Mm -hmm. And it's great. You know what? He gave her feedback. We went back. We did a rewrite. Uh, she sat down. And uh, this is a big thing that I have a problem with is not giving too much feedback or not like, hey, write it this way or this. I have to be able to read it and say, that's good, that's bad. I might change this sentence, but I can't sit down and write the sentence because I, I started to do that where I was like, well, let me show you what I would write. And then I like read it and I was like, oh shit, this sounds like me, not like you. Well, you have done that a thousand times with weightlifting because you will never lift the weights for them. 
So yep. think of this as an opportunity, just like you do coaching. I know you hate that term, but you're just coaching uh, up Jamie. Um, so in like the coaching and the mentor thing is interesting. Um, uh, and, yeah, and, I got um, thoughts on this. Go ahead. And um, I like to believe. So the problem I have with the term coach was usually coaches were people that were screaming at me while I was training. You know, like it just kind of was like a hundred degrees. We're out there banging and coaches are over there yelling at us all the time. So I had this like kind of weird connotation with the term coach and, you know, the, the arrogance of those who can play, those who can't coach. I think that there's an interesting segment between coach and mentor. Uh, I believe that a mentor is somebody that could still do what needs to be done, but is allowing you to progress. So like, uh, you know, like, like Jamie, for example, she goes to jujitsu. Like I don't view those guys as coaches. I view those more as like, you know, and not to use the sensei, but like, I think in jujitsu, they call them professors or whatever it is. But like, those guys are really more mentors. I have this skill. I'm actively doing it. And the difference is, are they wearing like the, you know, we go to jits and the guy's wearing a gi. Andy Reid never wore a football outfit. I was a little bit upset because baseball coaches. Well, I'll never say never. There's film of him winning punt, pass, and kick as a 13-year-old. At like 300 pounds. Behemoth. Yeah, he was huge. Uh, but like there's this idea of mentorship where now what you're doing is you're still in the fight. And as you're in the fight, you're developing people's best characteristics. And so when we get up and present or have the collective and we're you know m- mentoring people through this, we're not necessarily coaching them because they're peers. So now you bring in a Roth, you bring in a Derek Woodsky, you bring in a Kelly Starrett, you bring in a McQuilkin and a Wellborn and all these other people. And now what we're doing is we're sharing information, we're mentoring them and shepherding them across the bridge of, of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, so I presented on this in an NSCA D1. So they brought me in for these. And one of the presentations that I give is the life cycle of a coach. So essentially, I'll give you the cliff notes. You start as a trainer, right? It's not your original information. I learned this in a book, school, or my workouts. And we're mainly training behaviors, right? The old well-born dogs have trainers. Humans have coaches. Humans have coaches. But still, you're training behaviors, people just getting into the fitness realm. Sure. And then if I'm a high school coach, I'm definitely training behaviors because those wiener kids just need to be whipped into shape. They need some good behaviors reinforced and then motherfuck the the bad habits that they have. Eventually you evolve into a coach where you're not as hands-on, you're setting up and setting free, and then coming in and giving feedback for one, two, or three things. Then you level up and get, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't level up into a teacher where I have to create, I have to, to put this into my own words to help you understand, and then I get the feedback of me as a teacher did you understand? Did you comprehend? No? Okay, well, I need to find a different way to say this. And so we're going back and forth. It's more back and forth because we're talking about ideas versus a coach. I'm guiding you in one direction. In teacher, we're exploring. And then eventually evolves into now I'm creating my own material rather than teaching something else, somebody else. Uh, and then eventually we get to a mentorship level. So be it. Some people are stuck on these different levels, which no shame if you're a trainer. Mm-hmm. No shame if you don't want to level up from being a coach. But now this is one of the big things with the mission, with the collective, is we open it up to block one coaches. Mm-hmm. What subjects are they passionate about? And then we have six months to work with them to create 
a presentation, which is awesome because we saw Carl Case, mm-hmm. Alex Gibson step up in ideas and things that they were passionate about to then stand and deliver the information with ethos, pathos, and logos as you presented on. Mm -hmm. So we expect them to level up now that they had that understanding. But there was, for me, a level of mentorship because I was sitting in the back like, oh man, I I want to speak on medwell. I want to speak on uh, coaching female athletes from my perspective, but I'm just going to sit back and they did all the work. So you have guided them, set them free. You had the same moment I had when we were sitting to talk to me, Johnny, with Derek Witzke. Yeah. It's not about you, asshole which uh, if you guys go back, it's on YouTube. Derek Witzke and I had an amazing moment sitting at the table, this very table. I had a Talk to Be Johnny moment um, at the 2017 symposium. And as we were sitting there and Witzke is just doing what Witzke does, which is always uh, so impressive, I had this like weird sense of competition that he was somehow one-upping me and, and he was bettering me. And being a competitive individual, all of a sudden you start kind of trying to match it. And like, you know, you, you know, and on all of a sudden I had this like interesting moment of clarity where I heard this little voice in the back of my head say, it's not about you, you asshole. This is about him and providing him the opportunity to have his moment. And at that moment, I just kept my mouth shut and I let that whole thing just explode and marinate. And I stopped forcing my thoughts and this, and I just let it go. And I let him have his moment and he did, and he slayed it and he crushed it. We got one of the best moments we've ever had in any of our power athlete events because I got out of the way and I let greatness happen. And I think that's a huge milestone when you start making that idea of coach to mentor or just allowing people to realize, like you said, you know, you have all these opinions and this and you hear somebody else get up there and you're like, it's not about me. It's about these individuals presenting their information and allowing them to go on their journey unabated. Um, well, yeah, the old me leading seminars, like if somebody screwed up, I would have. But but think about it now. If you had to redo that, you would let people make their mistakes. Now, this is oh, an yeah. interesting thing about being a parent. Uh, I had this like uh, this realization for my daughters, and I tried to explain this to them, that if you just listen to me, I'll give you the cheat codes for life. Easy. I'll give you the cheat codes. Like if you just listen... I'll like lay this thing out for you. And they were like, there's nothing they were understanding. And I realized that nobody can give you the cheat codes for life. You have your journey in life and you as an individual have to be able to go out and make mistakes. Uh, You know, uh, successes, failures, find your own way, find out who you are. You just can't be who your coach puts you into. You have to become to flourish. And I realized growing up is finding yourself making mistakes. And uh, man, I always go back to what my dad said to me that uh, if you have to make every mistake yourself and you can't learn from the mistakes of others, you're going to have an extremely painful life. And uh, that's an interesting thing to say because you got to go make a lot of mistakes. Well, you got to pick, you know, the spoon or the shovel to do shit with. But also that's a conversation, you know, a 20 year old kid's having with a 60 or 20 somethings having a conversation with somebody who's in their sixties, who's, you know, uh, raised kids, done this, you know, I mean, like, like you think about, you know, life being the greatest teacher in history. And, you know, you always hear like the, uh, you know, life's tough, it's going to knock you down, you know, the Rocky speech. But it's true. I mean, if, if you don't learn from your mistakes and you keep making the same mistakes over again, if you got to bump your head every time you walk into the room, it's going to be a painful life. You have to be able to not make those same mistakes, which means that you have to be you know, have some form of introspection. Um, like I said, you know, we 
you know, we had two big milestones. I got done with the Wade's Army 1974 Blazer, which we put a ton of fucking hours into. Um, you know, we get done with the, you know, collective. Were there things that we needed to be micromanaging? Were there, did, was, could there have been more attention on the collective if I didn't have that truck? 100%. But we had two things thrust upon us that, you know, we planned the collective months in advance. And then the truck comes in later. And unfortunately, I have a terrible, terrible, terrible fucking uh, problem of saying no. You know, hey, can we do this? Sure, we'll find a way. And the thing that sucks is that we always seem to deliver. And I always wonder, like, what if we didn't deliver? Like, what if we couldn't get it done? Would that teach us that we can't take on too much? You know, but then we wouldn't be who we are. Yeah. We won the game, but there's plays that we can go back to the film. Yeah. And, um, you know, and all, all that means every year is we just get to improve upon it. And I really, I really like the format. Uh, Barbell shrugged, standing there with those guys. Um, there was also another interesting lesson uh, that I think uh, it took me a little bit longer to learn that I could have learned in that moment on that deal. Um, the guy who uh, from Barbell Shrug that passed away, Chris, Chris, uh, he was in uh, an interesting moment in terms of that deal where he was uh, cut like butt in on everything like he would drop in he would cut in it was all about him so there was still a lot of ego for those guys in that thing where they were all fighting for a voice and he was like i mean all of a sudden they were asking me football questions and then he wants to jump in with his football stuff which was like kind of like took a look and was like man like he needed that that Derek woodsky moment of like it's not about you asshole let your guests deal and i think We've done that many. I've done that, unfortunately, on too many of these when we've had some amazing guests where I've wanted to share, and you know, to for whatever reason, maybe to nurture your inner child or more, just to have a fruitful discussion to feel like I've done something too. Now we're creating an equal playing field, and then I think you get to the point where you're like, it doesn't matter. Um, this podcast and this information is about creating our guests in the best light and allowing them to share their information, and I think that there's uh, at least for me. You know, I could have learned that lesson early on from that podcast when I was like, God, just shut the fuck up. Every time I start talking, this guy keeps cutting me off and I don't want to hear about his high school football glory. Um, but you know what? Like I should have taken that and been like, it's not about you, asshole. But it took me a couple more years to figure that out. And I like to think that we've had better podcasts since then. We've had some amazing guests to come on where we can share a little bit, but it's really about them telling their story and really validating why we've invited them on the podcast. Give them the opportunity to move some dirt. dirt. Yeah, look at, I, I like what you did right there. But um, what's amazing on the podcast, dude, what, 650 episodes? This is it. 650, I still feel like I learned something every time. Like uh, if, uh, if it was stale and I didn't learn anything and I didn't like it and I wasn't in on it, I would have been like, fuck this, we ain't, we ain't spending the time, effort, money, and the, the brain power to do this. But I feel like this allows us to have organic conversations with amazing people, bring new people into our genealogy, connect with new people, learn more information, and take new avenues. Because at the end of the day, the day you stop learning is the day you die. Um, I, I really look, and here's well, the interesting thing, right? And then just to give you another perception I have, uh, I think there's a ton of people on this planet that die long before they lay down. So that's an interesting thought. Like uh, there's a ton of people that are just 
just waiting till father time shows up or the grim reaper shows up. They, they died years ago because one, they've stopped growing. They've got within a fixed mindset. They've crystallized in everything. They get the same haircut. They drive the same car. They effectively are just waiting their time until it expires. They're not doing anything of value. And uh, I think there's a whole bunch of people that have already died that just forgot to lay down. And I, I, I want to, I mean, a, a lot like my dad, I want to continue to learn and read and, and fight and battle and be in this constant like state of, of learning. I mean, you know, he was always reading. He was always learning new information, always wanted to, to you know, continue to grow. And, um, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, the day a lawyer dies is the day after he retires. So, you know, oh, once, yeah. once well, all lawyers... That don't have a place to go, don't have, you know, that's why they always, like old lawyers always end up having offices with young lawyers so they can show up and still be a resource and be in the fight. So they retire, but they never really do. Frank, yeah, specialist. So yeah, my, my dad uh, or my, my brother has uh, Al Stocky, um, who's Allison Stocky's dad. You know who Allison Stocky is? Do I ever? Yeah, do you know who she's married to? Uh, the golfer. Yeah. Um, uh, Ricky, Huge ass. Ricky. Ricky. Um, from... Mo Val, uh, he's a he's an IE guy. Um, Ricky Fowler, that's right. Yeah, he's been so Al Stocky, old uh, older attorney. You know, Liv, kind Liv of golfer. Yeah. Oh, did did he go with Liv? No, he resists. Ah, yeah, but that thing of like constantly learning, constantly in the fight, constantly challenging yourself to be able to be better versions of yourself, man. That to me is living a life. There's a bunch, like I said, dude, don't be the individual that dies and just waiting for father time to come and collect you. Yes. And there's so many outlets to provide that. And we mentioned your skills, building the truck, uh, Wade's army, power athlete education, all that good stuff. But then for everyone else out there, training can be that. It can. Continuously challenging yourself and striving for more and understanding your body and what you can give. I mean, Grindstone is because we get plenty of emails like, hey, I'm 45. I'm a former college football Man, player. There's like an interesting thing, too, with our training programs. And I think on this constantly, like I want the training to be challenging. Like, like I want the I want the execution of the training to be meaningful. So I like I think a lot of people are training for a benefit. Like, let's say you follow a training program and it's straight hypertrophy based. And the end goal of the training is to put on more muscle, which, of course, is beneficial. Everybody should carry more muscle. But I want a challenge within the training. Like, I just don't want you to go, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like uh, Paul Carter and I have talked for, you know, many times. Like, oh, you know, uh, uh, there's, you know, greater hypertrophy gains and stability in the leg press. And I'm like, yeah, but the day that, like, the majority of my leg work comes from the fucking leg press, I probably need to go kill myself. <laughs> right? Like, uh, like true, you know, like, yeah, you know, you're prescribing all these machines and, you know, it's just basically sitting down and obviously you're working to failure in a safer environment and idea of hypertrophy maybe. And we do do a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, I still want a high degree of execution and trainability. And like, like there has to be some element within the training. Like, I don't feel nervous getting into a leg press. I can put every plate on the gym and fucking the, you know, uh, you know, I have, do that have when I'm list. feeling bad. Yeah. And you know what? Like getting underneath and squatting a heavy weight. Like it there, might not be in terms of like, you know, Hey, like hypertrophy one-to-one, but it's still good. Like there has to be an element in the training, which is a high degree of execution that forces me into a space where one, I have to mentally think two, I got to make sure and quote Dave Brewer, I got to have all my shit in one sock. 
and I have to have a high degree of connection. I just can't put on headphones, sit in the machine and push because that's like taking the bus. And you know what? It's great taking the bus. Some days I do take the bus. Some days we take the bus in other ways. I want to be behind the wheel of a high fucking valued sports car, shifting gears, fucking slapping it through and moving it through the corners. And to me, all of our training programs have an element of a high degree of trainability and execution. You got to make sure that you are dialed in, you're healthy, you're moving. And you know what? Like you have a high degree of fucking connection within the training. Like it's, it's demanding my best and anything less, right? Like, like I said, dude, some days you get a shovel, some days you get a spoon. But I think the problem is, is that the training becomes a vehicle. It's just not like, Hey, um, I'm taking the bus to get from point A to point B, which is fine. When I get in the car to drive, I want to have the experience of getting from point A to point B as part of the journey. Yeah. And there's a key word that we used to throw around a lot that applies here. It was utility. Our training provides us the opportunity to be increase our utility as a person, meaning we are physically moving. We're yeah. prepared to push the proverbial car yeah. and the literal car that's that's pulled over inside the, the road. But that's the beauty of the move the dirt. It's not put on muscle, period. No, it's it's something that is a a well a metaphor that actually can happen. Well, being strong, um, like being strong is important, but also being able to use your strength in an interesting way. I uh-huh. mean, the, the amount of times that I've uh, been in a situation where if I hadn't have been strong, it would not have been favorable. Just give you an example. So um, we have that bitch in Cowboy Cauldron. So we got it for the symposiums a couple of years ago. And I, I looked at it. I was like, okay, dude, I know where to get these rings. I know to get where to get all the parts. I could have built it myself. And I want to, don't think I had the time, but also. Well, we were preparing for the symposium. Yeah, we had to get this fucking thing, right? And uh, I reached out to this company down in Houston that makes weld caps. And so if you guys don't know what a weld cap is, it's, it's a pipe. Uh, it's the end of a pipe. And what they do is they take these huge, you know, say 40 inch pipe, and sometimes they have to weld ends on them. And so what they'll do is they stamp out these huge, weld, these huge pipes, and then they weld them on. Well, if you take those pipes, like if you had a huge um, propane tank, like a thousand gallon propane tank, what they'll do is they'll take a cylinder and then they'll weld these ends on and then they pressurize it. Not every end cap gets to be used in a pipe because they, let's say, fail or whatever it is. They don't meet the mark. And so you can buy them on occasion. Well, I didn't know this. So I reached out to the company to try to buy a bitchin' one. And they quoted me some like astronomical amount of money. And I was like, oh, shit, these things are like, I'm not going to pay, you know, $2,000 for an end cap when I can get a cowboy cauldron for half of that. Um, but I ended up, obviously, the more time you or in a place you end up developing network. I met a dude whose uncle works for it and they have a bunch of rejects and the dude calls me. He's like, man, I got a big 37, 40 inch cap. I'm going to bring you. So I went up and met the dude yesterday. And so it's in the back of his truck, right? These are like, they're pretty heavy. So he like search around his truck for uh, monkey wrenches. And so the way you move them is you take two wrenches, you kind of tighten them and then you angle them up. So they basically bind and then you lift with them and he could only find one wrench. Cool. And he's like, I can't find the other wrench. I don't know how we're going to get it in your truck. And I was like, we're going to lift it. And he's like, can you grab this? And I was like, no problem. So I grabbed the end and he's over there lifting it. And I basically lifted it with him in the back of the truck. And he's like, shit, dude, there aren't too many dudes. And I mean, it's it weighs a couple hundred pounds, but the ability to be able to grip that thing, which rusty and it's, you know, metal, whatever, and be able to lift it over here. I'm like, once again, being pretty strong, grip, lift, rotation, and set that motherfucker in. Like these are the, the small things in my life where thank God I was strong because I wouldn't know how to deal with most of these problems without just brute strength. So there you have it. Yeah. Dirt was moved that day. 
<laughs> There's a lot of dirt, but I, I am going to build this epic fire pit. And if I get a blueprint, I'll, I'll make you one for Christmas and I'll maybe make all you guys one for Christmas if I can get enough of them. But uh, I have a pretty cool deal. Like I, uh, I found some really bitching, um, um, what are they, uh, like almost like studs kind of weld on them, like, uh, almost like, um, uh, like rivets. So you buy like, you know, on the door outside, how he has those big iron rivets. I thought I'd been bitching to like put a rivet in, tack it on the backside and we do like a bunch of rivets to make it look mid medieval. And then, uh, like basically like making some, like getting some round bar and making handles. And I think it'd be a fun project that I don't have time for. But unfortunately, if I don't have these projects to think about and all we do is focus on all of this, I find that it just gets stale. And um, that's something that I've talked to. I remember I talked to Luke all the time about it. I've talked to Harry and them, like, and, and you, like, like you have your coaching, you have your lacrosse, you have things that you're into. You have to have something that allows you to have a creative outlet. Oh, I get it. If, if, if all you do is this information and all we do is we talk about power athlete and athleticism and then, I mean, the, like you can, you know, like, I mean, you can spend an entire lifetime working on this stuff, but the problem is you become very one dimensional. And when I get on this podcast, if all I do is focus on this and I don't have other things like whether it be raising kids or, you know, uh, building different things and trying to have this level of creativity, I feel like all of that plays back into what we do here because that, it, that's what I was going to lead to. And the, the cool thing about your talk and the depth, and we will put this on YouTube, John's talk about ethos, pathos and logos antiquity and being more. And that's where we're aiming to within our coach network, that power of ethos. It's not just being a parrot of our information and rephrasing the cues. No, one, it's understanding the information and then applying it and bringing out that passion for movement for your athletes and truly empowering performance. To quote Harry Heppenstall, we are in the business of building hammers and having an impact on lives around us, which we'll get to. This is a move the dirt focus, but I think it's awesome and genuine that you're empowering the coaches that were there and then people would see it on YouTube, but to be more, be more. Well, um, a big part of that talk, um, when we discussed, I mean, the reason it starts with ethos is the ethos will always go back to what you have done. Mm -hmm. So the ethos is who you are. It's, it's the bedrock. It's the foundation. It's where I'm speaking from. And uh, a lot of people steal ethos. A lot of people craft ethos and bullshit it. And, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of people fucking with bullshit ethos. Um, but for people where it's, you know, what's been great about the ethos uh, and the Internet is now you can check. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody tells you something, it's, you know, it, it, does the story check out? And I think uh, <laughs> in, in, the, in the training space for me, um, you know, like uh, you know, we Chris Duffin at the collective. You know, I mean, we're sitting there talking about squatting heavy weights. I mean, the dude squatted a thousand for a triple raw. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about building ethos, like the I, only the, only the, uh, the pregnant pause. Oh, we squatted a thousand pounds for three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but that piece of ethos is so important for me. Um, you know, I mean, they, you know, you, you just don't happenstance across a, a thousand for a triple in a, in a raw squat. So, I mean, there's some pretty amazing stuff. And I think. I want to surround my or I want to surround myself with people that one of ethos, and two have gone on and done something ethos alone. Um, but then also, what I was trying to explain to these coaches is go it's like go and do something 
that allows you to develop your ethos. So when you do talk to people or you do write or whatever it is, you have a, you have a point to stand from. It creates a higher platform. But then the other piece, and I was really ha- hope to hammer this home, which people forget with when you get to pathos and logos, pathos only works, which is the emotional appeal, if you've established your ethos. Mm-hmm. If you use pathos without without creating ethos, it just sounds whiny, and it's it, it's not very compelling. And uh, I mean, you hear it all the time within the news, where all of a sudden just people just go to like a you know an emotional argument. And without giving you any background of who they are, why, you know, without it developing. And it just sounds whiny. And I'm like, fuck off. Well, even even going to different conferences and questions and people standing up against uh, experience. People speak at these conferences for a reason. They don't let there's a whole selection process. Yeah. So they like don't let dudes challenging Cal Dietz, get the fuck out of here. Like, well, but but what Cal does. So so Cal does an interesting thing, right? He doesn't uh, Cal doesn't use a lot of emotion in his talks. Like he gives emotion, you, you feel the emotion in him. But Cal gives a ton of logos. Uh-huh. But he and the the logos supports right. So with explain he, lo- what logos is. So real quick. logos is the logical appeal. So you have like ethos, which is who you are. This is the platform. This is the 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 platform at which I'm speaking. Right. I built the bedrock. And then there's the pathos appeal, which is uh, now I'm bringing emotion into this. The logos is the logical. Now I'm hitting people with data sets, reps, numbers. I mean, you know, you you, you hear it all the time and when you give that talk and you hear argument and more importantly persuasion broken into these three pieces now you can spot it and we had uh freddie from uh the light um, light path led yeah light path he got up and talked about his journey with light path that he had cancer and this i mean he did he created his ethos and then he hit us with pathos and then he brought in the logos so he said, hey, I, you know, I had cancer. I used this. It helped me. Now, all of a sudden, here's all the other people we've helped. I mean, he formulated his argument. And the best part is he didn't even know he was doing that. He just knew this is what the compelling speech is. And you know what? I mean, as soon as I hear, heard his initial origin story, he created all the, all the foundation he needed. Mm-hmm. Then he hit us with an emotional appeal. And then he brought in the... Uh, the uh, Red light benefits. Yeah, the benefits and the data. So... The problem too, though, is if you bring the logos in without creating ethos, it feels disingenuous. It feels like a snowball, right? Because now somebody's just barraging you with numbers. Well, that's but the, with the Cal- trainer in the beginning. Coach, of course, is all they have is the logos. Well, it's like um, the nutrition stuff. We hear it all the time. Well, you know, and I was joking that like, you know, like uh, everybody's a nutrition expert on social media now and they just are parroting the same shit, which mm-hmm. is like, yeah, you know, if... Uh, um, you know, the law of thermodynamics tells us that nothing is gained, nothing is lost, but we do know that if you eat in a caloric restriction for long enough, you lose weight. And so they get into this and yeah, like everybody knows this. I think this has become accepted, but what I hate with that is that all of this shit becomes null and void when you just look at food quality. And I think what we've done, like I've always said that, yeah, I mean, you know, I like the first time when I met Jimmy Moore, uh, who is a, uh, was a paleo kind of a carnivore dude. The guy was extremely fat. And I was like, Hey Rob, like this is the fat first fat paleo dude I've met. And he's like, it's cause he eats like a starved hog. That's what Rob said. Have you said, he's like, have you ever eaten with these people? I go ahead and eat. And he's like, it's disgusting amount of food. He's like, there, there's no way to get past the law of thermodynamics that if you eat like a starved hog, you're going to fucking be fat. And, uh, he's like, regardless of what it looks like. But what we found is that for most of those people, the paleo diet and those foods were extremely satiating. So it's tough to overeat. 
unless you have some FTO gene where I just fucking eat like uh, <laughs> with reckless abandon. Yeah. But uh, like the, the funny part, and I think where we've distinguished ourselves is like, yeah, you know, like all this is true with calories in, calories out. But at the end of the day, like it doesn't give you a license to eat shitty food. And here's the quality food of which we eat. You know, the age old saying is nobody got strong from eating out of a vending machine. You know, I mean, we would go out and eat and it was like there was a uh, lamb and meat and rice and like it was these basic foods. And George's deal was like, this is how people have been big and strong throughout history. You know, you talk about Herculean and this. I mean, they were Greeks. But, you know, I mean, that was this is how the strongest people in the world have eaten through time. And this package bullshit I mean, it's just empty calories and, you know, you can, you know, argue and Lane Norton does a great job of this, you know, oh, you know, calories in, calories out. Yeah. But like, look at the food quality. You know, I had a great talk with John Meadows about that. Um, John Meadows was training and I brought this analogy up or uh, this story up on the podcast before. So if you ever hear it again, it's a, it's still a gem. He wanted something that he could like still kind of like latch onto that allowed him to get through, you know, the dieting process. So he just wanted to eat frozen yogurt. So he figured out the calories. This is how much I trained. This was the deficit I was in. I can eat this much frozen yogurt. He shows up to the show and one of the judges walks over to him. And he's like, I don't know what you did, but you look worse than I've ever seen you. Uh-oh. So the idea came, he was substituting out food quality and he was getting his calories here when he should have been fighting for food quality. So in the calories out, calories in, calories out argument, what they don't talk about is that the, the quality of the body of the muscle is dramatically better when you eat higher quality, better food. Now, if we're just talking about fat people trying to lose weight, yeah, I mean, you know, if you weigh and measure this, I mean, they had a guy that ate Twinkies every day in McDonald's and lost, you know, 50 pounds and got healthier. But he looked like chewed bubble gum. So, I mean, if you're eating for food quality and you're, you know, basing it around protein and this, and we're in that one ingredient and all the stuff that we've been expounding for, you know, many, many years, the quality of the package will look better. It's like the other one. I mean, all this research has come out now about you know, rep ranges don't matter. It's just the next one, right? Like, is there a difference in hypertrophy between four reps, five reps, seven, 10, 12 reps? Not really, but there is a marketable difference in the physical appearance of an individual that lifts heavier weights than people that don't. And I, dude, I, I coined that one years ago. I could tell you a dude that lifts over 85% with greater accuracy. Like I can tell you based upon the physical look of an athlete. And I saw this all the time because I saw all these NFL players with their shirts off and I saw them in the weight room. The dudes that banged over 85% more consistently had a different look to their bodies than the dudes that didn't. Right. And um, that was just observation. Now, I mean, they look at and talk about this hypertrophy, but there's a difference. So whether it's uh, neurological efficiency, whatever it is, there's something else in play. So just being like, well, I'm going to do, you know, sets of 15 with the lighter reps because the hypertrophy isn't the same. Maybe, but for, there's a marketable look and difference in it. Just like we've seen when people do our training programs, they're all pretty fit. They're all real strong and they all can do a lot of fucking shit. Opposed mm -hmm. from just going and, you know, your leg day is fucking stuck in a, in a leg press because we're talking about stability and hypertrophy on this. I'm like, yeah, but being able to move through space well, that to me is a greater trump card than just getting in and hitting on that. So, I mean, there's, there's different arguments in this thing. Like, what are you training for? If, you're, if the function of your job is to step on stage in a Speedo, all right, there's a very real training program for that. And it looks like a, a long road of drugs and a lot of other crazy shit. But if you're looking to look, or if you're looking to be pretty fit, you're looking to be strong and actually being able to function in life, not just worry about tearing a, a ladder, a calf getting out of your car. There's a different training program for that. And this is shit we write. Yeah. I got one 
final question in the theme of move the dirt from your experience doing less and getting more out of your work. So as you age as an athlete, what's the thought behind doing less work, but still getting the benefit of the training? I don't think that ever ends. I think from day one, there's always been this idea of quality of movement that I need maximal return for minimal investment. If the only way, like I'll just give you an example, right? Like, uh, you know, let's say your goal is to make X amount of dollars. And the only way I can make X amount of dollars is to work four jobs. And I have to work those four jobs for, you know, six hours a day for 24 hours a day. And I don't get a chance to sleep right now. Is that like the best use of your time? Obviously you're hitting your goal, but you're not able to do anything else. So like my deal is like, what is the maximal return for the minimal input? And so when we look at training, there has to be economy of training. When we design training programs and we work with athletes, like the execution of move or the, the persistent pursuit of execution of movement, trying to make you know, these movements perfect so that I get less from more. Um, I, you know, I had a great talk with Louis Simmons about this years ago um, when we were talking about Prilipin's chart, Prilipin's table, whatever. Um, you know, when I asked him like on like over 90%, it's four to 10 reps. Why is it that some athletes get four and others get 10? And his thing came down to quality of movement, central nervous system efficiency, and other key factors. But the more highly trained an athlete is, the more efficient they are, and they get the benefit out of four reps that if an individual was relatively untrained or a novice or not as technically proficient, it might take him 10 reps to get done what somebody else can get done in four. <clears throat> the only problem is now that guy that's done 10 has had all of that loading, mm-hmm. all of that beating, everything on him. And so he'll never survive. So there's this constant fight that if the only way you're getting your results is by stacking more volume, adding, you know, and the analogy I've, I've given with, with, uh, with programming and with training, it's, it's like you go buy your first Christmas tree, right? And like that first Christmas tree, you know, you're maybe there, you get the Christmas tree, you get a few ornaments, you hang it on there. And then the next year you still have that Christmas tree if you get a fake one like we do. <laughs> um, I, as much as I love the smell of a real Christmas tree, I like just the waste aspect is weird for me. So years ago we bought like a pretty nice, um, not made in China, like a non-toxic Christmas tree. And like, you know, I, I brought it with me everywhere and uh, Christmas comes, I pull it out of the box, we get it up and we put it down, but we have a box full of ornaments that first year. And then the next year people would give us ornaments. You buy a few more through the course of the year. Next thing, all of a sudden, like five or 10 years later, your entire tree and it's like you, you end up like your grandmother's tree. You remember going to your grandmother's house for Christmas? Oh yeah. You can't even see the tree because there's so many fucking ornaments. That's the same analogy. I mean, that's an analogy, and it's the same thing happens within training. All of a sudden, you start here, and all you do is just start keep hanging ornaments, hanging ornaments. And what you have to do is throw away the tree, throw away all your ornaments, or move. And then you have to go through and be like, why the hell do we have so many white balls? Why are there so many of these? And you start kind of going through. That next year, you, you realize it, you put them out, that's enough. I'll just put this stuff. I don't have to put out every ornament. And so the, um, the ornament on the Christmas tree is the analogy I use for young coaches. There's all of this you want to do it, but the problem comes down to economy of movement. What can I execute well? What can I execute within the time in which they're doing? And what's going to produce the results? There's a ton of stuff that I really like Cal Dietz puts out. Um, do we use it all? No. Are there certain things that I saw that I was like, dude, I know exactly where to drop that and use that within French Contrast, within our PAP, and we continue to use it? Are the things that are modifications because his stuff's a little more specialized? 100%. 
are there ways that we're doing things a little bit different? hundred percent because it pays dividends. Mm -hmm. And I think that just comes through experience, having done the programs and seeing what you like. And more importantly, seeing what people can execute well, because alone in their garage with no spotters, the best program is the, or I, I could say, dude, like, like the, Worst program executed well is better than the best program poorly executed. So my thing always comes down to what can people execute? What can they execute with proficiency and perfection? And how many reps, like how does it get there? I mean, and if the only way that I can crack that rock is by just continually to get a bigger hammer and give it more hits, then I'm not being efficient and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. No. So when people do our training programs, you know, like one, we, we test just about everything that comes out. So I know exactly how long it's going to take you. Like I had a guy the other day on hammer on Monday, we have a, a max effort sprint day. And then there's usually some form of like hinging or X, Y, and Z axis and a little bit of accessory. And hammer is our training program for door kickers yep. and war fighters around the globe, holistic athlete movement readiness program. Um, and that acronym came because that was the one we pitched to the army. Um, but on that program, the guy was like, Hey, how come you don't have an extensive sprint pro uh, warm up before hammer? And I'm like, I did, I had to pull it out because people were spending two hours in training. So they were taking 30 minutes to go through the, the dynamic warm up, And then they were spending 30 to 30 minutes to, to sprint. And then they were getting in and we had people that were like, I can't do this program. It's taking too long. And instead what I did is I just said, Hey, you know what? Like I got to cut out the warm up stuff. And I got to be real smart on like, you know, we're going to give you somewhere between four to seven max effort sprint reps, you know, full recovery. What people don't realize is that a lot of times the rest between max effort sprints might, might be anywhere from four to seven, 10 minutes mm -hmm. based upon how much capacity and what your level of aerobic conditioning is to be able to aid in recovery. So all of a sudden, if somebody, so let's say I have six reps and you're taking four to five minutes between, it's going to take you 25 minutes to sprint. Most people probably get it done a little quicker, but then all of a sudden you put in a dynamic movement prep that looks like, you know, A skips, B skips, uh, you know, high knees, and you get through four or five different movements that are going to go through 10 yards at the, at the least, and you go through that three times, you're 15, 20 minutes. Now all of a sudden we've added 45 minutes on the front side of their training, then they got to transition back, they got to warm up. I mean, two hours in the gym. So the thing that I said was, I was like, dude, I got to find a way. I, and I always say, we got a big day to get, or we have a big day today, get on your horse and ride. So show up. Um, if you need to do an extensive warm up, I and mean, we could probably send that to people, but I need you to be able to show up, warmed up, get out and sprint, and then get in and get because not everybody has three hours in a day to sprint or to train. No. Now, I wish everybody did, but we have to be smart. So there comes down to this economy of time, and more importantly, being able to get maximal return for the minimal investment, right? Like if uh, if I ha if you have to give me twenty sprints to be able to get the amount of work done that I need. With you're them. not running fast enough. You're not running fast <laughs> enough. Right. So, so like this, these are the problems we deal with. And like this piece of like training economy, like, um, on hammer we'll squat on and, and sprint on a Monday. And we usually pull on a Tuesday. People are like, how can we don't pull on the, on the same day we do legs? And I'm like, we can't sprint. We can't, uh, hinge or, uh, do some form of bilateral hip hinging squatting motion and pull on, on one day. You fucking, there's no way. One, within time, and two, with the economy, like we'd just fucking blow people out. They wouldn't be able to train. So what I did is, and then they're like, well, why don't we do it on Thursday? Well, we have our max effort burn down longer sprint on Friday. So if I have you pull or do something heavy with some form of pulling on Thursday, it's gonna affect Friday. So what are we training for? Like, like what are my days? My day's Tuesday. 
Well, what's Wednesday? Easy effort runs that are that are 48 hours before the max effort run. So you're like looking at this thing and you have all these times, you know what people need to recover. And sometimes you got to pull the day after you squat, regardless how upset you are about it, because that's where it fits within the schedule. Yeah. Full body every day. Yeah. And grindstone's example of choose your own adventure for what time I have available today. Yeah. No, I, uh, I feel bad that people look at grindstone like a save. It's not, it's not. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Durrett, you know, every time he sees me, tells me it's the best program we have. He's like, I love it. It allows me flexibility of work, work with my jujitsu guys. And it, do jujitsu himself. Mm-hmm. So um, with the jujitsu stuff, um, you know, we just did a podcast on Grindstone and more importantly, the jujitsu. But being able to make sure, and th- this is something that I noticed just going yesterday. Um, you know, people love, love to do it, but there's just a relatively important strength conditioning aspect. You need to be able to work that aerobic base and you need to bang some weights. And as I'm sitting there looking at the uh, at the adult class yesterday uh, at Jamie's Jiu Jitsu, those dudes and I know they're they're opening a spot next door. They're expanding their deal to put a little S and C, a little bit. Ooh, of, great call. Yeah, Good which is them. smart. That's what which, Johnny's gym is. Which you need because people will show up thinking I, I did jits for an hour. I did my training for a day, but unfortunately, it's not it's not what's happening. Especially as dudes age. Like you need to build an aerobic base, you need to do something athletic and you need to lift weights because it becomes very apparent. Next thing you know, you're putting on a little bit here and uh, man, I feel it, dude. I uh, like having dialed back my training and not doing all the movement stuff and the throws and all the shit that I like to do. I feel like I've regressed and it's like a, like a nervous feeling for me and I'm so excited. Uh, jumped in, got, you know, kind of getting this deal and then we'll, we'll start ramping it up on Saturday and Sunday and start crushing it all next week. And then we'll sprint through, through, you know, through Q1 of next year. And, uh, it's a good feeling to feel like we got the collective in the background. I got the wage truck done. Now it's just about dialing in all the stuff well, that we, we got to do here. Shovel back up. Well, we got education. So we got to fin- put the finishing touches on the methodology course. Mm-hmm. We got to crack out, uh, you know, and really solidify this power athlete book. Um, you know, it's a long road and just some of the projects we have. And I'm super excited to get in and, you know, we get with uh, Antonio's input and Harry being able to develop masters of movement into something that's really bitching. Maybe we can get some good outtakes and show people a little bit more personality we got. Wow. We got a lot of that. And so, 650 power athlete radio podcasts underneath our belt. We did it. Got a lot of notches on the belt. Well, think about it. I mean, at 500, we were putting out the 500 fights. How many fights to be a legitimate tough guy? I figured 500. Vin Diesel's best piece of cinematic work happened in Knock Around Guys with 500. Yeah. And the best is when I posted it, how mad people got about it. This is bullshit. There's no way. And I'm like, great. Well, they took and I'm sure a you're- 2001 <laughs> movie as literal. I, I found out something that's crazy. So my first ever job was in corporate wellness for the Department of Justice in their gym. This gung-ho kid trying to work with government lawyers that hate their fucking lives, hate their jobs. And I'm like, oh, you should squat. And they just come down and run 10 miles on the treadmill and just zone out because their job sucks. Well, we had a team there and I reconnected at the TSEC conference with my boss. So he left that industry. Now he's working with the Marines doing something training wise. Uh, but I was asking about all the other people because he was there for a couple of years after I left. And one of the girls that we worked with was on Dateline. So she had a role 
essentially in this FBI agent that murdered his wife and it was this oh. big story. Oh my God. And so I was catching up with these people. I was like, where are they now? And he dropped that. And this is like 2012, 13. Nice. That this girl ended up on Dateline as the other woman. Ooh. And I was like, oh my God, this I is amazing. It. Yeah, I said, I could have. Yeah, so mm. then I had to watch the Dateline episode following and the whole story is just nuts. So like, I, I won't even link it up in the show. It's so wild, I'll, I'll tell you about it, but it freaking, yeah. Basically the guy that learned or what, went and investigated murders for the FBI, mm -hmm. killed his own wife after having an affair with this girl, and then he had all the tools in the toolkit to cover it up. So it's it's wild. It's insane. It's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can't believe it was real life. Uh, well, I mean, sometimes life is stranger than fiction. Yes. Which is pretty amazing after you read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Is that real life? Did you, ever, you never read Mary Shelley's original Frankenstein? Probably it's high school. I don't remember. I mean, what's pretty wild on that book... Uh, I think she was like 17 when she wrote it. Yeah, the story behind the story. I oh, know yeah. that better than the story. So, yeah, so she was like 17 when she wrote it, and it's really considered the first piece of like literary horror movie. I mean, we we read it in one of my rhetoric classes, and uh, like the arguments about like uh, you know man. I mean this. I mean like like the uh, like the lens behind it, analyzing it, it's fucking insane. So yeah, we had a, a he, like. So for my rhetoric classes, we would get like a, you know, it would be like, there's 30 books on the reading list. That class, there was four. And one of them was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it, we read it and discussed it ad nauseum. So as a 17 year old, is she thinking about the, the themes and the expanse and how this can be digested? Or is she just typing away at a story that she feels? That's an interesting point. Um, do people realize in that moment the information that they're putting down is going to be analyzed over the course of history and people are going to make arguments that you never wanted to make? Uh, I don't know. I don't think a 17-year-old kid would have the worldly perception to be able to make these arguments about a world that they're not necessarily plugged in on. Um, may maybe in, a, in today's time a little bit different because the world is so much bigger. But, you know... Uh, what about her history that led her to write this? And that's an interesting piece too, and that's for another podcast. But I think that there is um, uh, an interesting thing, and this is this is something too, which which really strikes me. You know, we always have this thing. I tell my kids, you know, don't grow up too fast, right? Like, there's so much information coming out; it's forcing these kids to grow up. I think kids today are less grown than they were a hundred years ago. Just because it's 17, you know, I mean, you know, kids were married, they had kids, they were traveling, you know, I mean, you know, 17-year-old uh, kids fighting the war, you know, World War One, you know, like this. I mean, think yeah, about... Yeah, lying about their age so they can go yeah. fucking fight. Dude, like uh, one of the guys who's like the most decorated U.S. soldier in history that won, you know, Congressional Medal of Honor, all this stuff, stuff, I mean, lied at like 16 to get over there. You know, stormed the beaches at Normandy, wasn't even 18 years old. I mean, so, uh, like, so we have this thing, like, I think today... Uh, you know, we have this idea of like, you know, protecting the children and this and whatnot. But I think we're, we're in an interesting time because like, so um, I think that this pivotal deal happened with the, uh, uh, the picture on the milk crate, like on the milk carton. Do you remember they used to put missing kids on the milk carton? I don't remember it, but I know of it. Okay. So when I was a kid, when you got a milk carton, there was a missing kid on it. And I think what happened is, is the day that they did that, now all of a sudden it became real that kids got kidnapped. 
and all of a sudden parents growing up realizing that kids get kidnapped, I think that was a pivotal point because all of a sudden, like, you know, we would go out and play and do this. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, and then there was that weird, uh, like kidnapping thing in New Jersey that hit all the news and then the Jean-Benet Ramsey and all the other stuff. So these things all became very marketable on TV. And now all of a sudden parents became worried that their kid was going to end up, you know, because before we would just come home, finish our homework, get on our bikes and just go. And my parents never asked where we were. Like I, like I, I've told the story about my brother and I, you know, riding like 30 miles on a Saturday and like getting home at dinner time. And my mom, like not, not even asking where we were, not that my mom was a bad mom, but just like they didn't worry about us the same way. Then yeah. all of a sudden the milk crate shows up and missing kids and you hear all this stuff. And I think parents got a little nervous. Like they didn't want to be that didn't want to be their kid. Man. Was it you that was telling me about the, the hundred dollar bill kids at like carnivals and stuff? No, Woodski was telling us about Woodski. that. Yeah. yeah. So they, the guy was going over and giving a kid a hundred dollars and was like, Hey, keep, keep this. If you want another one, meet me over at the, or meet me over at this uh, fence in 45 minutes. And then they were, that guy was giving it to other kids. Like here's 200 bucks. Go give that hundred dollar to a kid who's going to meet me over there. And then they, all of a sudden they come across the, the bills are obviously fake. The kid doesn't know, but yeah, they couldn't even catch it. I mean, and this is in small town, Montana. So, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's always been perverts. There's always been weirdos in this. And like, you know, you got to keep a watchful eye. I just wonder if the internet and more importantly, like what we're seeing today has made people more bold where now all of a sudden, like there's like more connection in this. I mean, like, like that's a scary thing. And that's what I try to talk to my daughters on is like, um, I always go back to my buddy RC. You won't benefit your children by hiding the uglies of the world from them. You have to discuss it with them. You have to let them know that there's good and bad and there's ugly in the world. And you have to point it out. He said the worst thing that people do, rich people do, is they want to paint this image of like, you know, it's fantasy land. Everything's great. And then all of a sudden, then they don't equate this with that. You know, you see the guy at home, you know, the, the drunk guy on the corner panhandling. Why is he begging for money? Because he's shit-faced drunk and he's on drugs. Like, don't hide the ugliness for the world. So with the kids, I talk to them all the time. Like taking Jamie, you know, jujitsu is important. Why? Because at some point you might have to defend yourself and choke a motherfucker out. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's beneficial to either take a spoon or a shovel with that information, like spoon feed the ugliness until they're ready to? Uh, I think kids are the one thing that's um, um, it's been very clear to me with my kids, at least they want to know all the details. Like, uh, like I, I tell them there's certain things that I don't want to talk about until they're a little bit older. Um, but I think being very forthright about stuff, like we talked the other day about, uh, um, like, uh, I was trying to explain to them, like not to use a belabor the move the dirt, but the idea of hard work. And I was like, dude, um, you come from a long line of people that were fucking hard workers. Like I've, I, like I really wish that uh, everything I went, I went into, I just was natural and it was easy. I went into school and I don't know, I got straight A's. I walked on the football field. The next thing I knew, that's not us. It's never been that way. That's not the family you got born into. I wish I was born into that family, but you're not. Everything that you want in this world, you're going to have to put an action plan and you're going to have to fucking put your nose to the grindstone and fight and steal it. Just like I tell the people when they come for the blocks. I welded these, I built them. You have to take them from my hand. You have to snatch this out of my hand because I'm not fucking giving it away. If you think that you're just gonna show up and get it, fucking go home. And we've sent many people away and many people have come back and I'm like, did you fight for this? Did you want it? You wanted it more than I did, so come and get it. 
and um, trying to explain it to them. Everything, everything in this world is available to you if you're willing to do the work. And so part of their deal with jumping them in class, like um, the, the girls are like, it's too much, it's too hard. And I'm like, good. If, if you don't feel out of your element and you're drowning a little bit, then it's never going to force you. And uh, even telling the girls, when I was in middle school, even in high school, it was pretty easy. And I'm the type of person where if it's, or I, I used to be, um, where if it's too easy, I'll just do the bare minimum because it's easy enough to do shit. Whereas then all of a sudden I got to college and I was like, holy fuck, this is hard. Like I got to do shit. And all of a sudden I buckled down and all of a sudden things exploded. And I always wish that I had gone to a school that challenged me more. So when I went with them, with their education journey, went and found a school that was more challenging because mm-hmm. I know how I am. If you let, if you make it easy on me, shit, I'll find a way to just to slide in. And I did it. I used to, you know, they, they'd hand out homework and I would just do the homework right at the end of class or right before and just like, you know, read what I had to do. You know, I just basically politic my way through this thing. Then all of a sudden I got to college and it was like, there is no hiding. There is no hiding because there's 800 people in your class. And if you hide, you're going to go away. And I remember the professor went on, we had a class of 800 kids and he's like, half of you is going to fail because it was baited on a, on, a, on a bell curve. Damn. Half of you are going to fail. You know, X amount of you, you know, this, we, we only have out of the 800, there's going to be 50 A's and this, and he went through it. And he's like, make a decision who you are. You can leave now. And like a few hundred people got up and left. So that piece of like providing them with, and I like, even with their homework stuff, I'm like, I'm here. I have, I would set aside this point to sit here and work with you because it's that important for me. My parents always sat and worked with us. And if we had anything and we needed help in this, they were always there. You know, I remember waking up like 10 o'clock at night, realizing something wasn't done and telling my mom and her being like, oh, fuck. All right, well, let's do this. You know, there was never a point where it's like, hey, fuck it. I'm tired. You get an F. Well, how about the dorm calls? Yeah, Bob Welborn. Yeah, so uh, when I was in college, we would um, obviously I'd go to class all day at noon. We had to go to the stadium and then we were in practice at seven, eight o'clock at night. And so I was super tired. And I told my dad, I'm like, dad, I get home. I got all this work to do and I'm so tired. And he's like, what you should do is come home and go right to bed and then wake up at like four in the morning and then study until six or seven and then go to class. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sounds like a great idea. I'm totally in on that one. So (laughs) what do I do? I go to bed and at 4 a.m. on the nose, my phone rings. Ring. And I pick it up. I'm like, hello, hello. It's my dad being like, just call him to make sure that you're up to study as we discussed last night. And I was like, Okay, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Okay, Dad, all right, all right. Yeah, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. Hang up. Lay back down one minute later. Ring. Did you go back to sleep? I did. Get up. Go and turn the light on. So I got up and flipped the light on, and I started studying. He proceeded to call me every morning, Monday through Friday, at 4 a.m. He let me go. He called me like 6 or 7. Called me every day, see how it went. My dad was an early riser. And he got up and he called me. And I remember my roommate being like, if your fucking dad rings, like, because we had, like, we lived in a little uh, little house and the room was like, the walls were thin. He's like, I can hear this phone fucking ring at 4 a.m. And I was like, dude, it's my dad. And I get up and I study and I get my shit done. And uh, my dad remembered, and I, I thanked him for it. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, well, like, like, and I was like, well, thanks for, for doing that. And he's like, what do you mean? We're a team. Like he, he had like, like it's, it's a fucking awesome story and why I miss my dad every day um, for many, many reasons. But like he looked at us as like my success was his success and that we were a team. And if, you know, your teammates slacking, then he was going to help. And if getting and making sure I got up early and doing this whole deal was, uh, was a, a way that our team was successful, 
And that's what it is. And so for my kids, I tell them, I'm like, dude, I'm here for you. Like, what do you need? You need to study. You need to work on this stuff. I'm here for you because there's never going to be a point like Jamie, like I was in bed, sound asleep, comes in, taps me on the shoulder, 10 a.m. What? Dad, I got something to do. All right, well, let's do it. Let's get it done. And, um, and so I think the kids growing up knowing that I always got their back and I'll always be there to help them in this. I mean, I don't know, like I'm, I'm not doing it for them, but I will support them in what they need. And, um, I think that's what my parents did for me. And, um, you know, my dad made, like you said, you're going to, if you want it, you got to work for it. You didn't get bored into the easy family. You know, yeah. these people are like, Oh, my dad's a billionaire. I guess I'll just be like, fuck you. Yeah, those I, are not, a I didn't get those people, you know, but, um, maybe one day. So, um, but hey, dude, we covered a lot of ground today. We moved a lot of dirt. We, damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a wrap on episode 650. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, training, philosophy, or the otherwise, you can always learn more at powerathletehq.com forward slash training for the training programs mentioned hammer, field strong, grindstone, bedrock. We covered a lot. And if you want to reach us on social media at Power Athlete HQ, you can get uh, at McQuilkin and at John Walborn. You can find me on all the socials. And our whole line of Move the Dirt merch found at shop.powerathletehq.com. Not just a fancy one line, but also an entire collection of Move the Dirt gear. Oh, I believe it. Until next time. Well, here's to another. Here's to you. Here's to you. And Six, another. 650. 650 episodes of Power Athlete Radio. Bye. Bye.